Chapter 4 of Book 1 of Les Miserables, Volume 5 by Victor Hugo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Les Miserables, Volume 5 by Victor Hugo, translated by Isabelle Florence Hapgood. Book 1st The War Between Four Walls. Chapter 4 minus five plus one after the man who decreed the quote-unquote protest of corpses had spoken and had given this formula of their common soul there issued from all mouths a strangely satisfied and terrible cry funereal in a sense and triumphant in tone long live death let us all remain here why all said enjolras all all enjolras resumed the position is good the barricade is fine thirty men are enough why sacrifice forty they replied because not one will go away citizens cried enjolras and there was an almost irritated vibration in his voice this republic is not rich enough in men to indulge in useless expenditure of them vainglory is waste if the duty of some is to depart, that duty should be fulfilled like any other. Enjolras, the man principal, had over his co-religionists that sort of omnipotent power which emanates from the absolute. Still, great as was this omnipotence, a murmur arose. A leader to the very fingertips, Enjolras, seeing that they murmured, insisted, he resumed haughtily, let those who are afraid of not numbering more than thirty say so. The murmurs redoubled. Besides, observed a voice in one group, it is easy enough to talk about leaving. The barricade is hemmed in. Not on the side of Léal, said Enjolras. The rue Mont de Tour is free. And through the Rue des Prêcheurs, one can reach the Marche des Innocents. And there, went on another voice, you would be captured. You would fall in with some grand guard of the line or the suburbs. They will spy a man passing in blouse and cape. Whence come you? Don't you belong to the barricade? And they will look at your hands. You smell of powder, shot. Enjolras, without making any reply, touched Combeferre's shoulder, and the two entered the tap-room. They emerged thence a moment later. Enjolras held in his outstretched hands the four uniforms which he had laid aside. Combeferre followed, carrying the shoulder-belts and the shakos. "'With this uniform,' said Enjolras, "'you can mingle with the ranks and escape. Here is enough for four and he flung on the ground, deprived of its pavement, the four uniforms. No wavering took place in his stoical audience. Combeferre took the word. Come, said he, you must have a little pity. Do you know what the question is here? It is a question of women. See here. Are there women or are there not? Are there children or are there not? Are there mothers, yes or no, who rock cradles with their foot and who have a lot of little ones around them? Let that man of you who has never beheld a nurse's breast raise his hand. 
ah you want to get yourselves killed so do i i who am speaking to you but i do not want to feel the phantoms of women wreathing their arms around me die if you will but don't make others die suicides like that which is on the brink of accomplishment here are sublime but suicide is narrow and does not admit of extension and as soon as it touches your neighbors suicide is murder think of the little blonde heads think of the white locks listen enjolras has just told me that he saw at the corner of the rue du cygne a lighted casement a candle in a poor window on the fifth floor and on the pane the quivering shadow of the head of an old woman who had the air of having spent the night in watching perhaps she is the mother of some one of you well let that man go and make haste to say to his mother here i am mother let him feel at ease the task here will be performed all the same when one supports one's relatives by one's toil one has not the right to sacrifice oneself that is deserting one's family and those who have daughters what are you thinking of you get yourselves killed you are dead that is well and tomorrow young girls without bread that is a terrible thing man begs women's cells ah those charming and gracious beings so gracious and so sweet who have bonnets of flowers who fill the house with purity who sing and prattle who are like a living perfume who prove the existence of angels in heaven by the purity of virgins on earth that jeanne that lise that mimi those adorable and honest creatures who are your blessings and your pride ah good god they will suffer hunger what do you want me to say to you there is a market for human flesh and it is not with your shadowy hands shuddering around them that you will prevent them from entering it think of the street think of the pavement covered with passers-by think of the shops past which women go and come with necks all bare and through the mire these women too were pure once think of your sisters those of you who have them misery prostitution the police saint lazare that is what those beautiful delicate girls those fragile marvels of modesty gentleness and loveliness fresher than lilacs in the month of may will come to ah you have got yourselves killed you are no longer on hand that is well you have wished to release the people from royalty and you deliver over your daughters to the police friends have a care have mercy women unhappy women we are not in the habit of bestowing much thought on them we trust to the women not having received a man's education we prevent their reading we prevent their thinking we prevent their occupying themselves with politics will you prevent them from going to the dead house this evening and recognizing your bodies let us see those who have families must be tractable and shake hands with us and take themselves off and leave us here alone to attend to this affair i know well that courage is required to leave that it is hard but the harder it is the more meritorious you say i have a gun i am at the barricade so much the worse i shall remain there so much the worse is easily said my friends 
There is a morrow. You will not be here tomorrow, but your families will. And what sufferings! See, here is a pretty healthy child with cheeks like an apple who babbles, prattles, chatters, who laughs, who smells sweet beneath your kiss. And do you know what becomes of him when he is abandoned? I have seen one, a very small creature, no taller than that. His father was dead. Poor people had taken him in out of charity, but they had bread only for themselves. The child was always hungry. It was winter. He did not cry. You could see him approach the stove in which there was never any fire, and whose pipe, you know, was of mastic and yellow clay. His breathing was hoarse, his face livid, his limbs flaccid, his belly prominent. He said nothing. If you spoke to him, he did not answer. He is dead. He was taken to the Necker Hospital where I saw him. I was house surgeon in that hospital. Now, if there are any fathers among you, fathers whose happiness it is to stroll on Sundays holding their child's tiny hand in their robust hand, let each one of those fathers imagine that this child is his own. That poor brat I remember, and I seem to see him now when he lay nude on the dissecting table, how his ribs stood out on his skin like the graves beneath the grass in a cemetery. A sort of mud was found in his stomach. There were ashes in his teeth. Come, let us examine ourselves conscientiously and take counsel with our heart. Statistics show that the mortality among abandoned children is 55%. I repeat, it is a question of women. It concerns mothers, it concerns young girls, it concerns little children. Who is talking to you of yourselves? We know well what you are. We know well that you are all brave, parbleu. We know well that you all have in your souls the joy and the glory of giving your life for the great cause. We know well that you feel yourselves elected to die usefully and magnificently, and that each one of you clings to his share in the triumph. Very well, but you are not alone in this world. There are other beings of whom you must think. You must not be egoists. All dropped their heads with a gloomy air. Strange contradictions of the human heart at its most sublime moments. Combeferre, who spoke thus, was not an orphan. He recalled the mothers of other men and forgot his own. He was about to get himself killed. He was an egoist. Marius, fasting, fevered, having emerged in succession from all hope, and having been stranded in grief, the most somber of shipwrecks, and saturated with violent emotions and conscious that the end was near, had plunged deeper and deeper into that visionary stupor which always precedes the fatal hour voluntarily accepted. A physiologist might have studied in him the growing symptoms of that febrile absorption known to and classified by science, and which is to suffering what voluptuousness is to pleasure. Despair also has its ecstasy. Marius had reached this point. He looked on at everything as from without. 
As we have said, things which passed before him seemed far away. He made out the whole, but did not perceive the details. He beheld men going and coming as through a flame. He heard voices speaking as at the bottom of an abyss. But this moved him. There was in this scene a point which pierced and roused even him. He had but one idea now, to die, and he did not wish to be turned aside from it, but he reflected in his gloomy somnambulism that while destroying himself, he was not prohibited from saving someone else. He raised his voice. Enjolras and Combeferre are right, he said. No unnecessary sacrifice. I join them, and you must make haste. Combeferre has said convincing things to you. There are some among you who have families, mothers, sisters, wives, children. Let such leave the ranks. No one stirred. Married men and the supporters of families step out of the ranks, repeated Marius. His authority was great. Enjolras was certainly the head of the barricade, but Marius was its savior. I order it, cried Enjolras. I entreat you, said Marius. Then, touched by Combeferre's words, shaken by Enjolras' order, touched by Marius's entreaty, these heroic men began to denounce each other. It is true, said one man to a full-grown man, you are the father of a family. Go! It is your duty, rather, retorted the man. You have two sisters whom you maintain. And an unprecedented controversy broke forth. Each struggled to determine which should not allow himself to be placed at the door of the tomb. Make haste, said Courfeyrac. In another quarter of an hour it will be too late. Citizens, pursued Enjolras, this is the republic, and universal suffrage reigns. Do you yourselves designate those who are to go? They obeyed. After the expiration of a few minutes, five were unanimously selected and stepped out of the ranks. There are five of them, exclaimed Marius. There were only four uniforms. Well, began the five, one must stay behind. And then a struggle arose as to who should remain and who should find reasons for the others not remaining. The generous quarrel began afresh. You have a wife who loves you. You have your aged mother. You have neither father nor mother, and what is to become of your three little brothers? You are the father of five children. You have a right to live. You are only seventeen. It is too early for you to die. These great revolutionary barricades were assembling points for heroism. The improbable was simple there. These men did not astonish each other. Be quick, repeated Courfeyrac. Men shouted to Marius from the groups, Do you designate who is to remain? Yes, said the five, choose, we will obey you. Marius did not believe that he was capable of another emotion. Still, at this idea, that of choosing a man for death, his blood rushed back to his heart. He would have turned pale had it been possible for him to become any paler. He advanced towards the five who smiled upon him, each with his eyes full of that grand flame 
which one beholds in the depths of history hovering over Thermopylae, cried to him, Me, me, me! And Marius stupidly counted them. There were still five of them. Then his glance dropped to the four uniforms. At that moment, a fifth uniform fell, as if from heaven upon the other four. The fifth man was saved. Marius raised his eyes and recognized Monsieur Fauchelevent. Jean Valjean had just entered the barricade. He had arrived by way of Mont de Tour Lane, whither by dint of inquiries made, or by instinct, or by chance. Thanks to his dress of a national guardsman, he had made his way without difficulty. The sentinel stationed by the insurgents in the Rue Mont de Tour had no occasion to give the alarm for a single national guardsman, and he had allowed the latter to entangle himself in the street, saying to himself, probably it is a reinforcement. In any case, it is a prisoner. The moment was too grave to admit of the sentinel abandoning his duty and his post of observation. At the moment when Jean Valjean entered the redoubt, no one had noticed him, all eyes being fixed on the five chosen men and the four uniforms. Jean Valjean also had seen and heard, and he had silently removed his coat and flung it on the pile with the rest. The emotion aroused was indescribable. "'Who is this man?' demanded Bossuet. "'He is a man who saves others,' replied Combeferre. Marius added in a grave voice, "'I know him.' This guarantee satisfied every one. Enjolras turned to Jean Valjean. "'Welcome, citizen,' and he added, "'You know that we are about to die.' Jean Valjean, without replying, helped the insurgent whom he was saving to don his uniform. End of Book One, Chapter Four